We are starting a brand new series, four-week series, in the book of Isaiah, and we're celebrating Advent. We're celebrating the Christmas season. How many of you know that uh, Christmas is a celebration of the greatest event in human history? And that event is the arrival of God into human history as Jesus Christ. And so in Christmas, we, we celebrate the coming of this Messiah, this anointed one, this promised deliverer that human history is waited for. And before we dive into Isaiah, I, I want to ask you a question, not even just for this sermon, but for the Christmas season. Uh, it's a question of self-reflection, kind of take some heart inventory, some spiritual inventory, if you will. And the question is this, where would you be without Jesus? Where would you be without Jesus? It's good to ask this because in the Christmas season, as followers of Jesus, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus into human history, yes, but it also comes with a lot of familiarity. We tend to read the same Bible passages each year, Right, we, we tend to go to the same Christmas service as a family every year. We have the same traditions every year. And it's good to ask, especially at this time of year, where would I be without Jesus? Because the gospel, the coming of Jesus into human history, is not just good news for one point in your life. It's good news for all points in your life. The coming of Jesus is not just good news for one area of your life, but the coming of Jesus is good news for every area of life. The coming of Jesus is not just good news for one person, it's good news for all people in the history of the world. It's my prayer that you don't grow uh, complacent and just become overly familiar and comfortable with the Christmas message. This idea that the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all of life, took the initiative to meet humanity in our brokenness by coming as Jesus, fully God, wrapped in human flesh, to dwell among and deliver his people from sin. That's the Christmas story. That's the Christmas message. And whether you're hearing that for the first time today or whether you grew up around it, it is good news for all people in the history of the world. So I ask, where would you be without Jesus? Where would you be without Jesus? If you know your Bible, you know that Isaiah, big book, is in the Old Testament. You know that the Old Testament happened before the coming of Jesus. Isaiah was written around 700 BC or 700 before Christ, so about 700 years before the coming of this Messiah, Jesus. And we're able to spend four weeks looking forward 700 years into the future from Isaiah's standpoint. We're able to look at the, who this Messiah is going to be. What, what is he going to do? Right, Because it's God's word to us and God is not just bound to time, but he's timeless and eternal. And so he speaks through Isaiah this, about this work of the coming Messiah. A big theme throughout the book of Isaiah is the Lord saves. In fact, that, that's actually what Isaiah's name means. It means the Lord saves. Right? So a lot of Isaiah is looking forward to this future day of salvation that's realized in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. 
And you have to understand as well that the Bible is not just one book, but it's actually a collection of 66 unique books. It's a library of sorts. And, and in this Bible are different genres of literature. Isaiah is part of a broader genre of literature uh, called the prophetic books. Right? He's in company with Jeremiah, Ezekiel, then the 12 minor prophets. And the prophetic books have certain, certain rules for reading. We want to be able to understand this well. And so to kick off the series, I want to just very quickly give you a few guiding principles so we know where we're at in the story of the Bible and so we know how to understand what's going on in the, this prophetic book, the book of Isaiah. The first principle would be this. The role of a prophet is to foretell and to foretell. Foretelling and foretelling. When we talk about foretelling, we're talking about maybe a face-to-face conversation instructing someone to do something at that moment. But then prophets also did a lot of foretelling, which was looking into the future and speaking of an event that had uh, not yet come to pass but will come to pass by the work of God. And then Isaiah, we see both of those. We see him foretelling, calling God's people to repent, but then we see foretelling, looking forward 700 years to the future coming of the Messiah. We're going to see both of those in the next few weeks as we study different passages in Isaiah. You also have to understand another principle for reading the prophets is that the message has both an immediate and a future fulfillment. Oftentimes there's an immediate and a future fulfillment, right? Isaiah was speaking to a people around 700 BC. This was addressed to people, uh, his contemporaries, right? But as followers of Jesus today, about 2,700 years later, removed from Isaiah, we're still able to look at this and say, man, a lot of this was fulfilled in Jesus, but then there's still yet things to be fulfilled at the end of the age because prophets spoke immediately to their time, but then also to a time beyond their own. It's because God's word is not just an ancient word, it's a timeless word that transcends time and transcends geography and transcends culture. Okay, so immediate and future fulfillments. And then lastly, we want to look at the New Testament use of the Old Testament prophets. If you've been reading in Matthew with us the last few months, you've probably seen a lot of prophets. You've seen a lot of Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. Because the New Testament writers, even Jesus, would appeal to the Old Testament and say, I'm fulfilling this portion of the Old Testament. So we want to look to the New Testament and see how is the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus and how is it still being fulfilled today. All right, so that gives us some grounding as we get into the book of Isaiah. We're focusing on the arrival of Jesus today, the arrival of the Messiah. And here's the big idea if you're taking notes. The Messiah arrives to bring light And life. The Messiah arrives to bring light and life. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, looking at the arrival of this Messiah. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 and unpack those together uh, today. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, says this But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, 
the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Messiah arrives to bring light and life. This word picture of light is used often throughout the Bible, especially in Isaiah, to describe the work and the coming of this Messiah, this deliverer for God's people. How do you know, just physically speaking about light, that light shines brightest in the darkness? This is true for us when we wake up in the middle of the night and we turn on the bathroom light. It's a lot brighter at 3 a.m. than it is in the afternoon, right? Light shines brightest in the darkness. What's true physically is also true spiritually. The light of God's salvation revealed in the Messiah shines brightest against the dark backdrop of our sinful, broken nature and condition. And we're going to jump up one verse into chapter 8, verse 22. It'll be on the screen behind me. Because to understand the announcement, the beauty, the goodness of the announcement of light, we have to understand a little bit where that light is shining and why we need light. So in chapter 8, verse 22, Isaiah says, And they will look to the earth, that is, those people who are unbelieving, uh, the world, those people who are not part of God's covenant community. And they will look to the earth, but behold, see, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And these people will be thrust into thick darkness. The gloom of anguish, distress and darkness. Doesn't this describe so well our world? Distress darkness, gloom, and anguish. We turn on the news, what do we see? Darkness, evil, distress, and anguish. We scroll through Facebook and Instagram, what do we see? Distress and anguish and gloom and darkness and sorrow and brokenness. That's why we take social media fasts. Say, I'm just, man, I'm taking a month off from Facebook and it's going to be really good for my soul. Why? Because the world is a broken place. 2,700 years after Isaiah wrote, 
His words resonate with our generation, every person in this room. The gloom of anguish, anguish, distress, and darkness. Not even just on a cosmic world level, but how about you? Maybe for some of you, Scripture has never resonated with you as this one just did in this moment. You say, man, if I had to define 2019, I'd say those words, the gloom of anguish, would describe it well. Distress, stress, darkness, brokenness, and oppression. You're carrying it with you every day. You can't shake it off of you any moment. The gloom of anguish. The spiritual, emotional, mental, physical oppression. Isaiah calls this the gloom of anguish. It's these people that are wandering around in the darkness, not even knowing what they're stumbling over. These people that are rejecting God and his plan to send the Messiah. And so you recall what I asked earlier, where would you be without Jesus? Some of you don't know how to answer that because you're not presently with Jesus. You haven't, placed your trust, you haven't placed your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. You're not walking with him. And if I could just suggest to you Perhaps the reason you're feeling gloom and anguish and tension and distress and brokenness and suffering and oppression is because you're not walking with God's solution for all of that. That's Jesus the Messiah. All throughout the Bible, Jesus is referred to as the light of the world. John in John chapter 1, one of the four gospels of Jesus' life says, The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Speaking of Jesus, you say, man, it feels like I'm walking in darkness. Are you walking with the light of the world? I just feel spiritually starved. Are you walking with the bread of life? Where would you be without Jesus? Or maybe we could say you are where you are because you're not with Jesus. The arrival of Jesus into human history is good news for all of life, for all people, no matter where you are. It's against the backdrop of darkness, the gloom of anguish, distress, that we can now read chapter 9, verse 1 in a new light. What does chapter 9, verse 1 say? But there will be no gloom. For her who was in anguish. We go from distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, thick darkness, into this announcement, there will be no gloom for anyone who was in anguish. What a contrast. No gloom. And I need you to know that this isn't some arbitrary picture of an ideal utopian future that might happen. These words are the words of God, the creator and sustainer of all that is in existence. His word never returns empty. For some of you, you just need to take this word. There is no gloom for those who are in anguish because of the Messiah and believe it. It's a promise. It's not an ideal. There's there's no gloom for her who was in anguish. Why? Isaiah unpacks it a little bit in the rest of the verse. He says, in the former time, that's important, in the former time, 
He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Isaiah is speaking of two times here. He says there's going to be no gloom. And here, here are the two times we're talking about. The former time, that is the time before this coming promised Messiah. B.C., before Jesus. History is divided on the arrival of Jesus. B.C., before Christ. A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. This former time, Zebulun and Naphtali have been brought into contempt. What's going on here? Remember, Isaiah is speaking to the Israelites in 700 B.C. And what you need to understand is that Israel in the book of Genesis was uh, divided into or given, uh, represented by, uh, 12 different sons. These were the 12 tribes of Israel. They were the sons of Jacob. And when Joshua, in the book of Joshua, conquered the land of Canaan and settled that land, he allotted territory in this land according to the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes. Two of those tribes were Zebulun and Naphtali. And so Israel was situated in about a 70 to 100 mile stretch of land uh, Palestine, or modern day, it's about the Arabian Peninsula out east. And in the geography, the way it actually worked out was Zebulun and Naphtali were two tribes that were allotted the uppermost, northernmost regions of Israel's boundaries. Okay? So that means a couple of things. One, most of Israel's enemies were above them, or north of them, if you will. And any time they would attack, they would come in from the north, and who would be the first tribes, the first regions of Israel to be attacked? Zebulun and, and Naphtali. You also have to understand that way down south, we have Judea, Jerusalem, which is the city of David, the capital of Israel. That's where the temple was. That, that's where the pious Jews went. That's where they lived. Right? That's where all the academics lived. That's where the teachers lived. Because they're really close to the temple. They could offer sacrifices. They could go to church, so to speak. Right? And so they would look at Zebulun and Naphtali and say, you guys are like outcasts. You're overlooked because you're, you're far away from the temple. Like, are you really following God faithfully way up there? Right? And so Zebulun and Naphtali, we understand, come to be kind of the symbol of the overlooked, the oppressed, the outcast, and the attacked. So Isaiah says, in the former time, yeah, Zebulun and Naphtali, when Assyria came in and wiped out Israel in 722 BC, like Zebulun and Naphtali were brought into contempt. They were the first to be sieged. But then he speaks of a latter time. In a latter time, he has made glorious this region, the outcast, the overlooked, the broken, the hurting, the suffering. This is the age of the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, he will make glorious what was once brought into contempt, overlooked, and oppressed. And in verse, verses 2 through 5, Isaiah unpacks a little bit more of this work of the Messiah, right? He brings light. This is our big word picture. The arrival of the Messiah brings light. What does light do? Light exposes what is actually there. It exposes the things you can't see in the dark. It illuminates our path. Right? Uh, 9 verse 2, the people who walked in darkness, they've seen a, a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them 
has light shown. Light also brings healing. And come on, Midwesterners, we can resonate with this just about more than anyone. We fell back on the clocks a few months ago, right? A month ago? A month ago. Yeah, get an extra hour of sleep for four months of darkness and despair. Right? What do we do when we leave home in the morning? We leave in the dark. What happens when we get out of work in the afternoon? We leave in the dark. And what happens in spring? The sun starts shining a little bit longer. Everyone is just hugging and slapping and high-fiving. and I mean, it's utopia. Why? Because the sun is shining again. It brings healing. These days are long and dark. But light brings healing and it uplifts our spirit and our souls. When the Messiah arrives, he'll bring light. He's going to let you see things the way they really are. And he's also going to bring healing and restoration. He'll give hope for our souls. Verse 3, the Messiah brings great joy. As you have multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. These people rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Joy at the harvest. Right, I married into a farming family. We talk farming quite a bit. And they're in harvest season. It's been a really wet, wet summer, a wet fall. And man, the celebration that happens when the harvest is complete is unparalleled. It's absolutely unbelievable. The excitement, the relief, it's like a burden has been lifted. There's great joy at the harvest. And even more so in, in Israel and in agricultural society, if you had a bad harvest, your family starves. If you had a bad harvest, you have to hopefully uh, trek two, three, four, five hundred different miles to go to a different country and beg them for food to bring back to your homeland. And Isaiah says, you know what it's like when you get a good harvest? You can live and you can eat and you can breathe. When the Messiah comes, he's going to bring joy that transcends the season of harvest. That's a deep-rooted, eternal joy. Verse 4, this Messiah brings freedom. The yoke of his burden. Yoke is something that would be worn on the shoulders of oxen. Kept them together, but then it also helped them carry heavy loads. Yoke on the shoulder, the yoke of his burden. The staff for his shoulder. It's a walking stick, usually big, heavy. Carry that with you on a trip. The rod of his oppressor. This is language of a slave and a slave driver. The rod correcting and even beating their slave. What does it say? You have broken these things as on the day of Midian. Some of you, you don't know how else to say it, but you are just weighed down. You, you are spiritually feeling weighed down and heavy and burdened. It's like you're carrying this shame or this, this responsibility you're not meant to carry and you just feel tired. Day after day, you're exhausted because you're 
shouldering a really, really heavy burden. Spiritually burdened. When the Messiah comes, what does he do? He doesn't just lift it, he breaks it. He breaks off of you the weight of shame, the weight of religion, the weight of guilt, the weight of oppression, the weight of expectation. He breaks that off of his people, bringing freedom to his people. He shines his light. He brings great joy as if, as if joy at the harvest. He brings freedom by breaking the yoke of burden on his people. And lastly, this is amazing. Verse 5 says, Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That is awesome. This is warrior imagery. This is warrior imagery. Isaiah is imagining this war-torn people with blood-soaked garments. And Isaiah says, when the Messiah comes, he's not just going to dispose of these war-torn garments and these bloodied rags. He's going to burn them as if they're no more. The Messiah comes and brings peace, not war. The Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom as a kingdom of peace on earth. The Messiah arrives to bring great peace to his people. The Messiah arrives to bring light. He arrives to bring life. Look with me at verses 6 through 7. This is the popular Christmas passage for good reason. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Messiah brings life. He arrives as life. He arrives as a, as a baby, as a son. The Messiah arrives to dwell with us. Who is this child that's spoken of? It's the child of just a couple chapters back, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means literally God with us. This child's name will be Emmanuel. Verse 6 of chapter 9 says he's also going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Here's what I need you to know. Christianity is the only major world religion that makes the claim, God comes to us. God comes to us. Every other major world religion asks the question, what do I need to do to get to God? God says, I look at the brokenness oppression, suffering, sickness, and sin of my people, and I'm not going to wait for them to come to me. I'm going to become Emmanuel, God with us. I am going to take on flesh and dwell among my people. If you've tried this for any length of time, 
the religious lie that says, I need to clean up my act before I go to God so he can accept me. You're going to be exhausted and you're going to be crushed under the weight of that burden. Just after first service, someone came up and asked me, this is all really good news. How do I get made right with God? If, if, if God comes to me, what do I need to do? Jesus came. He lived a sinless life. He died the death that you and I were to, uh, deserve to die. He drank the cup of God's wrath. He took on the sin of his people on the cross. And he rose again to defeat Death once and for all so that all will, who will place their faith in the work of Jesus can be reconciled back to the Father God and be made right with him. What do you need to do? And place your trust in Jesus who reconciles us to God. Christianity is not about what we can do to come to God. Christianity is about what has God done for us. He's done it all. He sent Jesus to live a sinless life, die a substitutionary death, and rise again for his people. The Messiah brings life. He dwells with us. He not only dwells with us, but he's also for us. He's on our side. That's the idea of verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish this throne and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This Messiah is not just a child, this Messiah is the reigning and ruling king. The government is not. On the shoulders of our political leaders, the government is on the shoulders of the Messiah, Jesus. And the Messiah comes in the kingly line of David to sit on a throne and rule over his kingdom. As modern Westerners, we don't really have a good paradigm or understanding of what it means to be under a king, a sovereign, a monarchy. But most of the world, especially the ancient world, was engaged in a monarchic form of government, which means there was a king, he was the sole sovereign. And in a monarchy, the quality of your king largely determines the quality of your life. I'll say that again because it's really important. The quality of your king largely determines the quality of your life. If you study the nations around Israel in the time of the Old Testament, you're going to see some wicked, vile, unthinkable, evil acts that these kings would require of their people. Terrible quality of life under wicked and terrible rulers. Here's the good news. As followers of Jesus, we have a king. As followers of Jesus, we are part of a kingdom. And our king is a good king. Our king rules with what? Justice and righteousness. Our king is not against his people. Our king is for his people. Our Messiah is king of the world. And he's a good king ruling over the kingdom 
of his people. The Messiah brings light and life. As we wrap up, I want to bring this question back in front of us. Where would you be without Jesus? Had Jesus not arrived, had this Messiah not come and shine his light in the darkness and break the burden of oppression and forgive you of your sin, where would you be without Jesus? It's good to think and dwell on this frequently. It is my prayer, Christians, let me address you for a moment. People, part of the church, I want to address you for a moment. It's my prayer that you will not grow overly familiar and complacent with the reality that Jesus came to save you once, absolutely, but then day after day sustain you and make you to look more like him. Day after day, he lifts the bondage of oppression and sin. Day after day, he delivers you. Day after day, he sustains you. The gospel is good news for all of life, for all of time. For those of you that don't quite know how to answer that question, but you can resonate with the fact that my life is marked by gloom, despair, brokenness, and darkness. I invite you to place your trust and faith in Jesus, the Messiah. He came into human history, yes, but he is the eternal king, reigning and ruling, reconciling people back to his father. Place your trust and faith in Jesus. He's the savior of the world. He's the hope of all people. And he is a good king that brings light and life to all that place their trust in him. Let's pray.